This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there and welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat. Dual-income families are pretty much the norm these days, and as the number grows, parents are turning more and more to child care to keep up with the demands of modern parenthood. In fact, statistics are showing that about half of all U.S. children are in some kind of formal child care arrangement by the time they're nine months old. Unfortunately, so many parents lack the guidance and the time, and so they approach the nanny search process backwards leaving the children with caregivers who may actually be doing their kids' developmental damage instead of helping them. The decision to hire a nanny or a babysitter can be a daunting task for pretty much anybody, but not for you, because in this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a nationally acclaimed parenting coach and therapist named Tammy Gold, who's known better to her clients as the Nanny Whisperer, and she's going to tell us about her secrets for finding and training and managing the very best caregiver for every child. We'll start off by talking about nannyology, getting the truth about nannies, what they do and how they think. We'll also learn to identify your own family's needs using her step-by-step assessment. We'll talk about interview techniques and reference checking and trial candidates and work arrangements and pretty much everything you can possibly think of about how to find and manage a nanny. So whether you have an occasional sitter or a full-time nanny, you're not going to want to miss this show. We'll jump right in when Positive Parenting continues right after this. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. You see me around the neighborhood and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hey there, and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. My guest for this part of today's show is Tammy Gold, who's the author of Secrets of the Nanny Whisperer, a practical guide for finding and achieving the gold standard of care for your child. Tammy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start off with something that you call nannyology, the truth about nannies, what they do, and how they think. Who are these nannies to start with anyway? Well, I I wanted to focus on nannyology because as a therapist, I was noting, noticing a lot of problems between um, parents misunderstanding nannies or nannies having issues with parents um, because parents kind of felt that there was a one-size-fits-all for nannies, that a nanny is a person that cares for children you know, on some sort of regular basis. But in actuality, nannies are actually very different, and there's a whole matrix of factors that affect if they can do your job or not. Um, And in nannyology, I explain, you know, what the myths are, that nannies are more like teachers and caregivers like nurses. um, Wait, that's one of the myths or that's one of the realities? That's one of the realities, that the myth is that they all do the same thing or maybe they're not. One of the myths is that they're just like a babysitter. 
So I try to explain that they're more than a babysitter because they do so much developmental work and they do so much um, teaching like a teacher would. And that, you know, what, just because a nanny works in this family, she'll automatically work well with mine. And that is not the case because there are traditionally three types of nanny, uh, something I call a parental unit nanny, a nanny who runs the show, typically works for working parents, is very proactive, autonomous, and can start day one and really know what to do without a lot of direction. Then there seems to be partner nannies for part-time working parents or parents who are at home who really partner 50-50 with the mom. When the mom's out, they're in charge, and when mom's back, they're the assistant. And then there seems to be a group of executor nannies. A lot of these nannies are live-in nannies. They really start with not that many, not a lot of experience. Um, they could be foreign and new to the country, and they really seem to just execute what the parents uh, are looking for. And by helping parents understand the nannyology, the three basic responsibility types, the difference between live-in and live-out and urban and suburban and driving and non-driving, then parents can really tailor their needs to understand, oh, this wouldn't work for me. I work 60 hours a week, and I don't have the ability to direct mm -hmm. someone like an executor nanny day-to-day-to-day. Uh, to day to day. I need someone who can be more proactive. So my goal was to really explain that this is a complex group, um, kind of like teachers. And, sure, sure. You know, there's a gym teacher, and there's a um, science teacher, and there's an English teacher, and there's a preschool teacher, and that's the same case with nannies. And once right. you can understand that, then there aren't so many issues or problems in that relationship. So, Tammy, the word nanny, I think people have a sense, or maybe it's just me, that there's some training involved or some basic standards. And are there? No, they're not. And that's, again, as a therapist and um, clinician, I was really amazed how little, you know, there's no government body. There's really very little um, regulation. There's not a lot of guidebooks. Now, there's certainly wonderful agencies like the International Nanny Association and other professional organizations to guide you, but parents may not know about these. So anyone can advertise themselves as a nanny any day to anyone, and that can be scary um, because sometimes parents feel a false sense of security thinking, oh, this person says they're a nanny, yet they may have no nanny experience whatsoever. They may have no training on infant development or toddler development if you're hiring someone for uh, those type of ages of your children. And you really need to be aware of what you're looking for and what could go wrong before the fact because right. there's no one guiding you along the way and there's no government body kind of giving you the day-to-day -day directions. Yeah, you'd think that that yeah. would be there. There'd be some sort of regulating body, but uh, I guess, I mean, they regulate cosmetologists and people absolutely. who cut your hair, for goodness sake, I mean, yeah. And it was, you know, I thought, God, there's people, you get, you know, a test to drive a car. You, exactly, you're a test to be a hairstylist. Um, you're a test, there's training required in so many jobs, In this, this most important job, someone who will critically shape who children are emotionally and cognitively. I mean, caregivers have effects on the brain for the first one to three years of life. Sure. They need yeah. to have some sort of regulation, and they don't. So I thought I would try to bring as much awareness as I could um, to parents understanding what's really going on. So I want to start off with, I think, 
what should really be the first step that people go through, but it probably is not the first step people go through, which is they, they often will say, look, we need somebody, and then they'll just go out and try to get somebody. But there's a process that you suggest people go through to assess their needs. How do they even begin to figure out? I mean, with you, you mentioned the different kinds of nannies. I would bet that most people did not know that they may fall into three or more categories. Or, right. You know, how, um, do you, how do you decide what you want first before you go out looking for somebody? And um, what I use as a therapist is an assessment form based off of what in therapy we call a traditional biopsychosocial assessment. And it's really the way therapists get a lot of information on someone in that very first meeting. And as I was doing a lot of mediation between parents and nanny and realizing, God, there's so much miscommunication here. There's so much um, that the nanny didn't know or the parents didn't know. I realized, wow, parents have to start this in the right order, which is look at yourself first before you can look outside. And I break it down um, easily for parents into two categories. Most times when focusing on child care, nannies, au pairs, daycare, they focus on what are the physical needs, and I call them musts. They need to have these many days covered, this many hours for this salary. But what is most important really is the emotional must. I need someone who can partner with a working mom, that parental uh, unit nanny. I need someone who can handle the developmental needs of a preschooler. I need someone who has a gentle, warm affect. And I teach parents how to outline. Um, in my book, I uh, include the family needs assessment, but even someone hearing this without the book could just write down what their needs are physically, the days, the hours, the salary, the duties, the physical piece. And then what they need emotionally, how old their children are. Right, Tammy, Tammy, hang on just a sec. I need you to speak up a little louder. You're, you're kind of fading out there. Oh, sorry. Um, what their uh, parental physical needs are and emotional needs and what their child's physical needs and emotional needs are. And if you can outline those, um, that's a great starting place. And in the book, I explained how to look up your child's age and understand what they need developmentally, because a lot of parents may know this. You know, so many parents are just figuring out how to parent, let alone how to understand how someone else will care for their child. So it's up to clinicians and professionals in the world to help parents along on this decision. And it really needs to start by understanding what you want first. Like any other job, all jobs typically start with an employer outline, and then they look for candidates. And this most important caregiving job has to start the same way. Do you think that everybody's got their list of what they need up front, or is that something that no. develops over time? I would think that you, you know, you'd start putting together a list, and then you'd realize, oh, wait, but we need somebody who can do a little bit of cooking while the kids are sleeping. Or, oh, you know, I've totally forgot that they've got soccer on Thursday afternoons, and somebody's got to get them there. And that, you know, in, in my book, I have the form that is like four pages long and asks every single question, and it really prompts parents to address all of those. Do you need someone who can swim, who can cook, who can tidy up at what level? Do you need homework help? Do you need um, someone to arrange the activities or just drive to the activities? So um, certainly in my book, it literally walks you through step by step. But parents, again, if they don't have the book or, or can get a copy, they can just outline and visualize what their day will look like from morning till night and what their week looks like Monday through Friday and figure out all the steps 
that go into having that run smoothly for themselves and for their children and at least start with that being the very basic outline of what they need. Talking with Tammy Gold, who's the author of Secrets of the Nanny Whisper, a practical guide for finding and achieving the gold standard of care for your child. And Tammy, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Tammy about some reference checks and interviews and a lot of other things that you really need to know about hiring and keeping a nanny on board. I'm Armand Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Did you know one in three adults is at risk for kidney disease? And kidney failure is more than three times higher in African Americans. If you have high blood pressure or diabetes, you could be the one. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Tammy Gold, who's the author of Secrets of the Nanny Whisper, a practical guide for finding and achieving the gold standard of care for your child. I want to just jump right into, I think, one of the things. I remember this when I was going through the, this whole process, and I wish I would have had the checklist that you had because you made all sorts of colossal errors. But once you get past the screening part, then it's kind of up to you as the parent, as the parent unit, the, both of them, to check some references, and that's something I think makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. And help us get over that hump. Sure. And it's very uncomfortable and um, kind of feels unnatural um, because, again, there is no traditional one, two, three step for caregivers. Whether you're going to a daycare center or you're going to having a babysitter, au pair, or a nanny, these people are essentially strangers. And you need to find as much information as you can about them. Now, reference checks can feel uncomfortable for the parent to do. Um, They may not have been a manager before or or asked these type of questions. And part two, sometimes the references don't call you back. Parents are busy. Um, They don't have time to field questions about the daycare center from five years ago or the nanny from seven years ago. But the parents need to be vigilant that they reach them. And what I find is that Um, parents typically ask the wrong questions that don't yield the crucial information. So in the book, I speak about a generic reference check and what I call the gold targeted check. And in a generic reference check, you're focusing really on how the nanny did at the old job with the reference. But unfortunately, you and that reference may be extremely different. And your child, you know, they may be very different. So if you ask, did you like the nanny? Yes. Was the, did the nanny do a good job? Yes. Um, would you work with her again? Absolutely. We adored her. And you hang up the phone, you think it's a glowing reference. However, if you focus on your needs in the future for your job and ask questions pertaining to your, uh, your outline of emotional needs and physical needs, I call them musts, you can really ask the crucial questions that yield the most information. And the same reference that was glowing may now not be as glowing. So if a parent now asks, how do you think um, Mary would be with two toddler one-year-olds that have a lot of energy and run around all day? Yeah. I'd imagine you might find that, oh, I, I have no idea because my kids were seven and nine. Absolutely. That's exactly right. That's exactly, and that happens a lot. They may say, oh, she's not really great with toddlers. 
Or if you say, well, I'm going to be out 60 hours a week, how do you think Mary will do? The mom may say, I never left Mary one day in seven years. She really needs someone to work with her. That's how she works best. So it's helping to parents to understand their needs and then to ask every screening question, interview question, reference check question about your needs, not how the nanny did in the other job, because it may not have anything to do with your needs or your wants. How do you go to the bold step of hiring somebody who has no experience? Well, this happens a lot, especially with someone who wants to hire, someone who may be very new to the country or may be right. a relative of someone's. But that a candidate may have no information to check, no references, no background information. And in that situation, I really recommend trials, longer than usual trials. In the nanny world, typical interviews do not yield a lot of good information. You can't typically tell if a nanny is great for you in an interview. They're uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. Nannies shine best with children, not necessarily adults. So I recommend two full-day trials because after those full days, you really get a lot of data points to help make your decision. Now, with someone with no experience, again, who was literally a virtual stranger just a few weeks ago, you want to build the puzzle to say, who is this person? And your only way to do that, since you can't ask questions or check the background, is to spend a great deal of time with them. So instead of two-day trials, you may do two weekend trials or two-week trials and really ask the right questions, see how they interact. Are they good with infants after one day or after three weeks? Are they getting tired and irritated? Is there maybe another job that you could call that wasn't a nanny job, but to get any kind of color on who this person might be? Right. And I want to talk a little bit about the in-person interview, though, because I think that's, you know, we're going to be checking the references, and, but at some point, probably even before you check the references, you're going to have some sort of a conversation. And you said it's, it's not the most representative kind of, of meeting that you're going to have because they're nervous, you're nervous, but... I'll tell you, one of the things that I did, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts about this, it was almost more important than any of the interview questions was, hey, hold the baby for a couple of minutes and let's see what you do. Um, without saying, you know, let's see what you do, but it's meet the baby. And there were a few people that I remember excluding simply because they just really didn't interact with her. Right. And that is a good piece. It's a critical piece. It's the most important piece. Now, usually I recommend the meet the baby piece in a trial. Um, the interview piece is just to kind of get the basics. Did the person seem presentable? Did they seem respectable? Did they seem kind? Did they seem warm? Um, but it's when you, you see them interact with your child, like you did, that you can glean a lot more information. However, you know, it should be said that sometimes nannies are nervous. Remember, they're trying to appease both parents and make a new baby happy, and they may need to get into the groove of this new baby. So I wouldn't want to discount someone who looks amazing in all other areas but is a little nervous in the first five minutes with the baby. It's just something to note. Well, I liked everything else. Um, her minus was she's a little, you know, she was a little unsure with the new baby. Let's bring her back for a couple hours. Let's see how she gives a bath and how she gives a bottle and if she gets into the groove. But you picked up a critical piece, which is you need to assess how they are with the children because that's what you're paying someone to do. You really don't care if they can field very difficult conversation with adults because that's not the job. You want to see if they're comfortable, warm, happy, loving, and patient with children. So that is very, very an important piece. Yeah. Um, and smart that you guys did that. 
you know, it just seems very difficult. I mean, part of the reason why you'd be hiring a nanny or some sort of a full-time or all-day caregiver of some kind is because you have dual-income couples and people are gone, and you mentioned 60 hours a week, but that's that's really probably not uncommon when you add in the transportation time. How is it that you... Do you take a day off from work? Do you have them come in on the weekends? Because, you know, if you're talking about watching somebody and having a, a, a trial for a couple of days, you're going to want to be there, right, and see some Absolutely. of that. Absolutely. And you hit it perfectly. A lot of parents will say, I'm working. I cannot take any time off. And, and to that I answer, no problem. Let's do night trials and weekend trials. Let's have the person come every day at 7 when you get home, help with dinner, bath, and bed for five days. And let's have them come for two days on the weekend, 10 hours of each. And then you've got almost 25 hours of experience with that person and all those data points. Were they good with you when you asked them to do the bath the right way? And when you corrected them about how to feed um, Tommy the bottle before bed, you can then have a lot of um, information to fill in that stranger puzzle that I always refer back to. So if you're working, it's not a problem. Um, never feel that this is going to cause a problem. Just use the time you have, even if it's one hour a night and one day in a weekend here. Use as much time as you can to spend time with that person and observe them so you can get your data points fixed. And then I've had working parents who will say a week later, wow, I feel so much more comfortable. Having her come every night for bath time was wonderful and helpful, and, I, and she was responsive and terrific. And then someone who was trialing two people would say, the other person just seemed really tired at night and on the weekend seemed to lose steam because they have so much data points from the nights and the weekend, they can really make their decision a lot more clearly. Wow. That's, but it's still, it's, it's a major commitment. I mean, you're looking at this as the way I think people should be looking at it, which is what could be more important than who's going to be taking care of your kids. Absolutely, yeah. and you hit the nail on the head there. And I found that people, you know, parents are wonderful and they're devoted, especially this level of this generation. However, I find, you know, so many clients will spend hours on what crib to buy, hours on the bottle decision, hours on diapers, and maybe spend 20 minutes on person who can literally shape who this child is. They will have an effect on their emotional growth, their cognitive growth, and because it's not you know, made aware that this is such an important caregiver and important profession. A lot of parents don't focus the time they need to on this most important decision and focus more on the physical things like bottles and strollers and diapers. And I hope that this book will bring awareness to that and knowing that you really do need to take a little time. I know it may seem annoying and it may seem, you know, bothersome, but it is so worth it when it comes to someone who will affect your children. You mentioned the word shape, that the nanny's going to be shaping the child, but you also have a section in the book about how you were essentially shaping the nanny because there's going to be some times or some elements in there that you may not agree on 100% or that may not have come up on the interview or something like that, or that there are certain things that you really love this nanny, but you would like her to do things your way in, a, in certain situations. How do you go about shaping the nanny? Um, well, that is such a good point because, you know, as much as people don't focus on the hiring process, they do not focus on the training process at all. And then I come back to the same point. This is the most important job in the world, and it needs training more than any other job. You know, grocery clerks, clerks have more training than someone with a child. And it doesn't matter if a person was a caregiver for 30 years. They've never been a caregiver in your home for your child. 
So you need to do training on the onset. When you start the job, you need to be clear. This is how we do positive uh, parenting. This is how we do um, positive reinforcement. This is how we calm them when they get hurt. Um, because I've mediated between countless families who've had problems, and the mother or father thought they were clear, and yet the nanny had no idea that there was a rule about iPads on Thursdays, or no idea you can't give an ice cream comb in the park, or can't you know use a granola bar to kind of lure someone into the bathtub. So you need to train them. I have a whole section on training in my book. Right. But if someone wants to do it at home, they need to just think about their day from morning till night, the physical aspects and train them, and then going back to that emotional aspect, which is the most important piece, think about the situations that occur and figure out how you want the nanny to handle it. Because if you don't tell the nanny, they're either going to do what the last family wanted or they're going to do what they think you may want, and that may not be right. I've had situations where a nanny called me because she was fired letting the baby cry for five minutes. And her answer was, wow, my last family, who I worked for for five years, would have fired me if I went into the room before 15 minutes. We never discussed it, and now our relationship is over. So you want to ask them, you know, what their thoughts are and then shape them and tell them what your emotional views on parenting are and how you would like to execute tricky situations when you're not there. Tammy Gold is the author of Secrets of the Nanny Whisper, a practical guide for finding and achieving the gold standard of care for your child. Tammy, thank you very much. Great thank to have you. Thank you for having me. Hi, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and it's time for another Parents at Play segment. As many of you know, I've got an 11-year-old, and I can tell you that the older she gets, the harder it is to find games and toys and activities that we can do together because she's got so darn much other stuff going on. So this week, I wanted to focus on toys and games that you might be able to do with a tween or a pre-tween. Let's start off with Bounce Off from Mattel. So you have to envision the playing board, which is a 6 by 6 grid. You and your opponent bounce colored ping pong balls into that grid, and what you're trying to do is match the design on one of the challenge cards. It's really one of these things that's simple but not easy. It's probably going to remind you a little bit of one of those carnival games, you know, the kind at the county fair where you spend about 50 bucks trying to bounce a ping pong ball into the mouth of a bottle so that you can win a giant panda or something like that that you don't really want and probably could have bought for $25 anyway, and it's too big to fit in your car. But Bounce Off is a lot cheaper, and it's a lot more fun. Now, there are two different levels of cards. There's the easier ones that maybe have two or three balls in a row, and that could be like an L shape or a a plus shape. Or there are harder ones, which are are a lot more difficult to do. They may require six balls, not in a row, but six balls in some various configuration, and they're pretty hard to do. So you'll be able to play it with kids of varying levels of coordination and interest. Bounce Off is for two to four players aged five and up, but I think it's really going to be more interesting for the tweens. Costs about 18 bucks at places like Target, or you can look at Mattel.com. Next up, we've got the Science X Fueling Future Car from Ravensburger. Sure, you know, everybody talks about solar power and fuel cells, but does anyone know exactly how they work? Well, by the time you are done putting together this very cool model, you and your child absolutely will. 
So you start with the guide, which explains what an electric car is and what all the components are. And then the real work starts. This kit comes with almost all the switches and solar cells and magnets and other stuff you need to conduct nine separate propulsion-related projects. All you need to do is supply the battery. You and your child are going to have a blast discovering the future of automotive technology. And the cars you build, this is the best part of all, they actually work. The Science X Fueling Future Car is about $44. It's best for kids who are 8 and up, or you can get it at Ravensburger.com. Next up, we've got Girl Mazing from Jada Toys. Girl Mazing is a line of remote control cars that's aimed at girls. You can get a Chevy Camaro, a Ford Mustang, a Lamborghini Murcielago, and a Jeep. All of them are 1 16th scale and customizable. Each one comes with a lot of different colored stickers. And speaking of colors, they're pink. I, I really don't understand why so many products for girls have to be pink. As the dad of three daughters, I can assure you that girls are interested in other colors as well. But pink or not, the girl amazing models are a great way for parents, especially dads, to connect with their daughters. The Jeep is $24.95. All the rest of them are $19.99. And you can get them at your favorite retailer or at jadatoys.com. Jada has another line of remote control vehicles that's, I guess, aimed a little bit more at boys. It's called the Hypercharger RC Vehicles, and this one really is bye-bye batteries. The vehicles in this new line come with a built-in rechargeable battery. You can just plug it into almost any device that's got a USB port. You can choose from a Bentley, a Continental, a Camaro, Mustang, Dodge Challenger, Scion, Chevy Silverado, and a Ford F-150. Great fun for the remote control enthusiast and his or her children. Yes, 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 that means you. You have to share. It's for ages 6 and up. The cars are $19.99, and the trucks are $24.99. You can get them at Walmart or Amazon or, again, at jadatoys.com. And finally, we've got the Graphic Skins Design Studio from Rose Art, and Skins has a Z at the end. This is a really unique, fun toy that tweens and teens are going to want to use over and over again. The concept is kind of similar to those rub-on tattoos, but it's a lot cooler. It starts with a battery-operated suction chamber. Then you grab just about any object that will fit into the chamber. You pick one of the full-color skins. You wrap it up in a wet sponge, which comes with it. Then when you fire up the suction chamber, it sucks all of the air and the water out of everything, and it basically plasters on the skin right onto whatever object you're doing. The chamber itself costs about $30, and the kits are about $12 to $20, depending on how big they are. Each one of the kits includes a snap-apart and snap-together model. That allows you to do a different design on each part, which is very, very cool. i got to say, though, it does take an awful lot of time. However, I think your tween and early teen is going to stick with it because it is so engaging and so fun. You can get some more details about these and many, many other toys and games we reviewed at parentsatplay.com. We'll have another segment for you next week, but don't go quite yet because, as you know, there's a lot more positive parenting coming up. I'm Armin Brott. Welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show on AFN. I'm Armin Brott. We are the narrators of our own lives. We control our perspectives by telling ourselves stories to make sense of the world. And sometimes those stories become a very powerful reality, and they can actually determine whether we're going to lead a healthy, productive life or get ourselves into trouble. 
Now, I'm not just talking about stories that we tell ourselves or we tell our kids. I'm talking about things in the culture that we hear so much about and we keep telling ourselves are true, but they're not really. For example, there's the multi-billion dollar self-help industry, and there are popular programs that are supposed to discourage drug use and drinking and teen violence. And some of the programs, in fact, such as abstinence only, that, you know, just say no thing, or scared straight courses actually have the opposite of their intended effect. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Timothy Wilson, who is a professor of psychology and an author of a great new book, and he's going to tell us about basically what works and what doesn't and why. Because the reality is that there's scientific evidence that shows that story editing, changing the stories that we've been telling ourselves or that we believe, can actually make you happier, can turn you into a better parent, can solve your teenager's behavior problems, reduce racial prejudice, and even close the achievement gap in education. But you've got to know how to do it. We'll start our conversation about redirecting our narratives when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Timothy Wilson, who's the author of Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. Tim, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I have to say, I get a lot of books come in. I mean, a lot of books. And usually I'll open them up, take them out of the envelope, and, and look at the cover, the front, the back. For some reason, I sat down and started reading Redirect. And, I mean, it's it's a nonfiction book about psychology. <laughs> and I read the thing from cover to cover. It was really riveting because it was so completely counterintuitive. You know, all the things that were told about the way that you should react. And I think the, the beginning chapters, I want you to talk about this, about police officers or uh, <clears throat> firefighters who are recovering from traumatic incidents, that the approach that is generally taken about basically don't talk about it is completely wrong. Yeah, well, thank you for the praise. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of common sense out there, things our grandmothers told us, and some of it's right on the mark, but unfortunately not all of it. And, and one of those is this idea that after we've experienced something uh, traumatic that it's best to uh, get it out, to talk about it as soon as possible. And, indeed, most uh, or many fire departments and police departments require that their officers go through this procedure if they've witnessed something horrific and, and relive it right afterwards. Well, it turns out that's the wrong thing to do, that uh, some evidence that it can actually make things worse by imprinting those memories in our minds and make it harder to forget them. And, you know, at first, at least a little bit of distraction, getting back to your life is, is not a bad thing. Okay. And then, but there's the stories that we kind of tell ourselves, the way that you characterize things that are also things that really that need to be looked at from a different perspective. And I think one of the, the really interesting ones, again, towards the beginning of the book, but you were talking about college students. Somebody gets to college and they do miserably on a math test. 
and there are you you give a couple of different kind of archetype characters one child or not child one young person could say you know this just goes to show you that i really don't belong in college and another one says you know this just goes to show you that you know maybe i need to work a little harder and just that little tiny bit of an idea is very predictive of the future's success and the future ability or likelihood of finishing college for both of those kids. Yeah, well, a real theme of the book is this idea of storytelling, that we all tell stories to ourselves about who we are and what's happening to us and why we're doing what we're doing. And I think we all know that, but we sometimes forget how important it is and how that story or narrative can really set the path for our future in a good or bad way. And and that example you gave is based on a study I did many years ago where we, we brought in uh, college students at the beginning of their career who weren't doing well and uh, did a little study where we assigned some of them to a condition where we tried to convince them that this wasn't a sign that they were failures or that they couldn't do it. It was a sign that they perhaps needed to learn the ropes more and, and work harder. And um, the ones who got that little redirection of their narrative, if you will, um, ended up doing much better in school and were more apt to stay in college. That the problem with these these negative narratives is they can really be self-fulfilling. And, and the, you know, once we label ourselves as a failure, we give up. We don't try as hard. We don't study as much for the next test. And that confirms that view that we can't do it. Um, but, you know, a more optimistic view in many realms of life uh, makes us try harder and, and often leads to more success. Now, you mentioned in here also Carol Dweck, who's the, the author of some of my favorite studies, which we've talked about a lot in the show, which basically are the difference between somebody telling a child, you are really smart, or saying you really worked hard for this, and that those simple things can produce tremendous results, not not coming from the inside, but coming from the outside. Yes, and I'm, I'm, I, too, am a big fan of Carol's work, and, and I think it fits well into this uh, idea that that kids uh, certainly have narratives about themselves, and parents play a big role in instilling those narratives. And that that is a counterintuitive one. I know with my own kids, you know, we want to think of our kids as geniuses and, and kids who have high ability, and, and the temptation is to tell them that, oh, you know, if you, you did so well on the spelling test, you're really smart. But uh, Professor Dweck has shown persuasively that that kind of fixed mindset can actually be damaging and better to instill on our kids that it's all about growth and and uh, learning and and persistence that leads to success all right so we've got a little bit of background on the narratives that we tell each other or tell ourselves and the impact of that Let, let's talk about how this can apply to parents and their kids. I mean, certainly telling your kids, we just talked about, you know, telling your kids not you're you're so smart, but you really worked hard, and that's why you got a great grade in the spelling test is an important part of it. But what else is there that's, that parents can be looking out for? Well, there is a chapter in the book on parenting, and, and, you know, the basic message is I think sometimes as parents we forget that um, it's not just our kids' behavior we're trying to mold, but really their their views of themselves, their narratives. We want them to have healthy views of themselves in the world so that as they get older and when they're not around us, they're apt to, to respond in the right way. And, you know, these narratives can be anything from 
real core uh, senses of themselves as and what relationships are like, attachment narratives as, as to uh, what they can expect in close relationships, to um, other kinds of narratives as to you know, why they should or should not um, uh, smoke or drive dangerously or, or, I mean, narratives take many forms in how they view themselves. And I think parents, as I said, play a key role in helping to shape those narratives. And are you suggesting that these are the kinds of things that we can teach our kids independently, or, or do we need to have this with the, the safety net of a, of a person like yourself who can walk us through the whole process? Well, I think there's a lot parents can do themselves, and, and um, I think it's, uh, it's not always easy, I can say, as a parent myself, but, um, you know, instilling these core attachment narratives is, is really a matter of being responsive to our kids and, and um, looking for, at their needs and delivering consistent, dependable care. Um, I think that's a pretty basic one that most parents know that, that uh, you know, how to do. Uh, but some some of them are maybe not quite as obvious, and and um, one I guess I would say is how to dole out rewards and punishments. It's something we all do as parents to reward our kids when they do something well, and if we want them to play the piano, to maybe uh, reward them for for practicing. Um, and punishments, you know, we we sometimes have to discipline our kids. Um, but I think what we sometimes forget is that's conveying a message to the kids, too, as to why they're doing what they're doing. And the basic message there is do it with as light a hand as possible um, for both rewards and punishments. That if we go overboard, let's take rewards, that, that we really want our kids to um, learn how to play the piano. Um, if we reward them a lot for practicing, they, they will do it. Rewards are powerful. If, if you know their favorite thing is ice cream and we give them ice cream every time, they will practice. But what we forget is what that, what's that doing to their narrative, to their understanding of why they are playing the piano. The stronger the reward, the more they're apt to say, I'm doing it for the ice cream. It's not that I really like this. In fact, uh, too much... Too, too much of an emphasis on rewards has been shown to undermine interest. It sends the message that this must be something bad if you have to reward me so much for it. And so the trick is to, uh, we do want to nudge our kids in the right direction and, and get them to be well behaved, but to do it with a sufficiently strong reward or punishment that does the job, not so strong that that's why they think they're doing it, if, if you follow me there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the goal of, of either way, of a punishment or a reward, would be essentially to get the kid to be able to make the right decisions on his own. Exactly. And and if they if the message they're saying saying to themselves, I'm just going to do the right thing when mom and dad are around so I can get the reward or avoid the punishment, then they're not necessarily going to do the right thing when we're not around. Um, but if we instill that that uh, narrative that this is something I want to do or, or not do. That, that's really the key. Timothy Wilson is the author of Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to keep talking to Timothy about changing our narratives and how simple tweaks can have pretty significant results. I'm Armand Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. <laughs> Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Timothy Wilson, who's the author of Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. So 
I wanted to talk about with you another issue I think that I think was just fascinating, how volunteering can affect pregnancies, teen pregnancies. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, you know, it's a program that, uh, well, let's frame the question this way, that um, you know, teenage pregnancy is, is alarmingly high in, in the United States. And, um, you know, let's put on our hat as, as social scientists. What sort of programs could we um, uh, give in schools or, or recommend that parents do that would make kids act more responsibly? Um, well, it probably doesn't come as you know, right to mind that I should get my kids to do volunteer work. But, in fact, there's a program that shows that indeed is, is a, a good way. And so the question is why? You know, what does volunteering have to do with uh, teenage kids having unprotected sex? Well, um, what these programs suggest is that you know, the kids who are most likely to act out and, and do dangerous things are those who feel disconnected from their their world, they feel that their environment, their community isn't really, uh, they don't feel part of it, they, they feel um, alienated. And nudging them into doing some volunteer work can forge those connections, make them feel more valued, make them feel like there's something they care about. Uh, they view themselves differently as someone who has a stake in the community. In this program, it's done through a health class in schools. Kids are asked to do a certain amount of volunteer work during the year, but they have a lot of choice as to, as to what kind of work. They, they could choose a, a senior center or a preschool or, or a homeless um, shelter. And the hope is that they really do get into it and develop some, uh, some bonds there, which, which often does happen. And as a result of that, kids who were, this is a, a well-done experiment where some kids were randomly assigned to do this program and some were in a control group that didn't. And, and the ones who did it, um, the girls were uh, less apt to become pregnant to a fairly substantial extent, and they also um, got better grades. And um, I think you know, one reason for that is this, it changed their narrative. They, they really began to view themselves differently as, as a result of that volunteer work. Now, one of the issues I think is, is so difficult, and it runs throughout this book, is how you unlearn negative narratives. How do you begin to start that? I mean, first of all, how do you recognize that you have a negative narrative to begin with? And then once you decide that, I mean, how it's not like you just throw a switch and all of a sudden start talking in different terms, is it? Well, uh, good point. And, um, you know, I, I think there are signs that, that we are going in the wrong direction if we're really uh, worried about some aspect of our lives and and uh, there's something that preys on us we can't seem to get over and and um, but one uh, avenue to take is that social psychologists have developed some quite effective writing exercises that um, it can be as simple as taking out a piece of paper and before you go to bed at night for about 10 or 15 minutes just write about what's troubling you and in as uh, free a manner as, as you can. And um, a psychologist named James Pennebaker at the University of Texas has tested this, this procedure. And you know, what he tends to find is that um, it's painful at first. One reason we tend not to do this is it's, it's hard to confront what's troubling us. And people often cry and, and get upset as, as to uh, what they're writing about. But in the long run, this, this opening up, as he calls it, has amazing benefits that it I think it lets us view the, our situation a little differently, allows us to uh, maybe find different meaning in it in a way that allows us to get beyond it. 
And uh, people who do this writing exercise, you know, maybe two, three, four nights in a row, uh, in, in Pennebaker studies, he finds they have better functioning immune systems and better health. Um, if they're employees, they show up at work more. If they're students, they um, do better in school. So, you know, it sounds magical, but it, but it often can be very helpful to uh, to do that. Yeah, that's the whole thing. I was sort of thinking about going into the kitchen in a Chinese restaurant or something is sort of the the old thing about, you know, you don't want to know. You just don't <laughs> want to know what's going on. So is is this one of these things that you just do it because it works, or or is there an actual way to answer the question why? Uh, you mean why why do it, or what, why am I feeling no, why, the way I am? Why does it work? Why does writing in a journal a couple, I you know, see. 15 minutes I a see. night, you know, how uh, does that help you? Yeah, well, you know, I think the evidence shows that it, it, it works through this process of meaning change, that, that it's often hard. We get stuck in one way of looking at something, and it's hard to gain perspective. And some recent studies show that it, it, this kind of writing exercise is especially effective if we take a third-person perspective. So we uh, imagine you're a fly on the wall looking at uh, um, our particular situation. So, you know, imagine if you're having trouble with your boss and, and you had some angry uh, blow-up with, with your boss, um, when you think about it, we tend to re-experience it and immerse ourselves and, and ruminate about it. But if we can imagine we were a fly on the wall looking at it as someone else would, we often gain a perspective that we didn't have and maybe see that, oh, you know, maybe I was a little bit, I contributed more to that than I thought and I can take this step to solve it and, and now I understand more where my boss was coming from. And, and it's this reconstrual or, or change in meaning that, that really is, is helpful. One of the difficulties, it seems, and you point this out quite a bit, about different programs and different approaches is measuring them, and certainly you're able to to measure some results of you know, the, the journal-keeping and things like that. But how do you separate out so many different factors? I mean, there, there's one of the chapters called Scared Crooked, which starts off with a, a line about a football coach in Oakland, California, which is where I live. And, you know, how so the, he's talking about preventing kids from dying, from not not just dying, I mean, from being killed, from homicides. He he's goes to goes yeah. to more more funerals than graduations. How do you know that it's just the program as opposed to something else? Well, I mean, I, I love that example because that, that fellow who it was so well-meaning. I mean, he, he cared deeply about um, the young people he was working with. And he, he went so far as to get a second job in a funeral home in order to take his kids and show them it was kind of a scared straight program. You know, here's what's going to happen to you if, if you join gangs and right, so on. Right, right. And he was so well-meaning, but, but unfortunately it's an approach that has been shown not to work very well. And in fact, scared straight programs, if anything, do more harm than good. And the way we know this is there are social scientists out there doing good experimental work where, where kids are randomly assigned to take place take part in a scare state straight program or not, and then you follow the kids and, and see what happened to them. So, you know, the good old-fashioned experimental method is, I think sometimes we forget that applies as equally to interventions um, to prevent violence as it does to developing a new drug to cure cancer or something. We, we really have to test these things rigorously. Let me ask you a little bit about peer pressure, because that is for, for teenagers, especially in tweens, a tremendously influential part of, of what goes on in their life. And we're talking about in the book about how you can use these narrative changing things to overcome the 
but I'm doing this because I want everybody to like me, or I'm doing this because everybody else does it, sort of peer pressure type of thing. How does that work? Yeah, well, you're certainly right that, uh, you know, when kids get into those teenage years, their peers mean more to them than their parents often. And, um, you know, one thing we're finding is that often kids have misperceptions as to what those norms are, and just correcting that misperception can help. So uh, there are programs on college campuses to try to reduce alcohol abuse that just correct students' um, nor, uh, perceptions of how much other people are drinking. And on almost any, every college campus where it's been studied, students overestimate that. They think, oh, everyone's out drinking, and, and I probably should too, when in fact many people aren't. The, the drinking is not as common as, as the kids think. So that's one thing we can do is just correct those misperceptions. Um, and then hope our kids choose wisely who their friends are. And, of course, when kids are younger, we maybe have a little bit of control over that as to who they hang out with. It's harder when kids get older. But, but um, uh, you, there are programs that um, bring troubled kids together thinking it will help, and sometimes that's the worst thing we can do is to take kids who are um, – uh, headed in the wrong direction and bring them together so they can impress each other with you know, how dangerous they're, they're behaving or, or what have you. So what was the most interesting lesson that you learned when you first started looking at this stuff? Um, gosh. Um, well, I'll answer that from a parent's perspective. Is in learning at all this, um, you know, I think as a parent, I learned, first of all, it's difficult and, and how many decisions are made on the fly um, and how we don't have time to fully think them through. I mean, you know, our kid calls us up and says, um, hey, I want to do a sleepover at such and such a house. That's fine, isn't it? And, and you know, we're, we're making these decisions. And so giving some thought in advance to um, you know, how we're going to handle things and, and what our policy is and, and trying not to overdo it. Not being a helicopter parent is one I struggled with. You know, we want to um, uh, ideally, uh, you know, affect our kids' lives the best we can, but learning to step back and let them make some mistakes and, and not always intervening is a tough lesson I learned. I, I hope I learned. <laughs> we should all learn that one, yeah. yeah. Timothy Wilson's the author of Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. Timothy, thanks for joining us. Really fascinating. Uh, thank you. It's been great to be here, Armin. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.